Hello, everyone, and welcome to a slightly different format of the AABIP podcast, our first episode of Challenge the Expert, wherein we pick a topic with little or controversial evidence, but with large practice variation, and then we pick the brains of our designated expert. On the hot seat today is Dr. Nikhil Mina. Dr. Mina is an associate professor of medicine and the director of IP at the University of Arkansas. Dr. Mina, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Udit. All right, so our topic for debate today is broad, you know, but for simplicity, we'll call it optimizing sample yield with EBUS. Uh, Dr. Mina, before we get started, uh, do you have any conflicts of interest? I do not have any conflicts of in- interest. Perfect. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> so let's get started with the optimal needle size. So Dr. Mina, bigger is better, right? So if I'm willing to pay three times the price of a standard 21, 22 gauge Olympus needle, all my procedures should be done with the 19 gauge needle. That may or may not be right. A bigger needle gets a bigger sample, true, but you also, and while entering the node, you're causing more injury going in, in my opinion. Uh, and all my samples between the 19 and 22, there's probably been more blood in the 19 than the than the 22, 21s. I use the 19 probably solely for lymphomatoid uh, involvement of my lymphomas and et cetera, but not for any other indication at this point. Maybe if I consider sarcoma, how on the differential I'll try a 19. And if I'm not getting enough viable tissue or it's mostly blood, I would probably turn to a 22 in the same case sometimes. So if you suspect sarcoma or lymphoma, you'll try the 19. And if it's bloody, you'll switch to the 22 again. Yes. Do you like the 25? I like the 25 for on two occasions. Whenever I'm going across the aorta or the PA, I like the reach. Uh, particularly, I use 25 in regular ebuses if people are on uh, or anticoagulation and platelet to call minimal injury, but I usually reserve them mostly for transvascular aspirations. So basically, okay, so transvascular aspirations, since you're practicing that, and for uh, patients who have a tendency to bleed, whether yes. it's a coagulopathy or whether it's uh, dual antiplatelets. Yes. So only thing, only reason 25 goes across the aorta is because it's six centimeter versus the 22, which is four. And the four does, doesn't make it across the aorta all the time consistently. So if I'm going to punch a hole through the aorta, I want the needle to make it through the other wall into the node or tissue. Uh, otherwise, they'll just get a hole for no real reason. Okay, so the longer length is what you like then? Yes. Olympus has uh, 25 of its own now. Have you tried it? Uh, I'm waiting on it. I have not tried it yet. Perfect. Now, I mean, uh, the Boston needle, I think, definitely needs a little more training, right? Uh, but I like it too. And what about sarcoid? Would you go for a small needle? Uh, sarcoids, typically just the regular 22, 21. Okay. Granulomas are microscopic structures, right? So I should be able to get it with the 25 too. Yes. Uh, it's just that uh, the price point hurts me uh, in the sense I go with the cheapest available. And if that fails to get me, then I move on to a more expensive technique. Perfect, perfect. So uh, start with 22 in most cases then is, is yes. how I take it. And what yes. kind of anesthesia are you using for your EBUS cases? I just do moderate sedation uh, with propofol. 
And do you uh, do it yourself or do you have an anesthesiologist doing it? I do it myself. Okay. Um, any thoughts about, uh, you know, nasal EBUS or EBUS under good local, very good local anesthesia? So uh, I've tried EBUS uh, nasal. I mean, I don't usually do it as a practice in patients who are extremely agitated, uh, even with sedations, they tolerate the nasal EBUS a little better than going through the mouth. So I'll do them occasionally in those patients, but tend to typically tend to do an oral intubation in majority of the cases. It also depends on the nose size that the scope does make him bleed a little bit more than others. Uh, with uh, As far as local anesthesia with COVID, pre-procedure anesthesia has become so interestingly complicated that uh, you can't use a nebulizer, use an atomizer, then somebody mm -hmm. would say you can't use an atomizer. All you can do is a, use a hurricane spray, which essentially is a big jet of air going into the back of the mouth, which if there was COVID back there, it was going to come out. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I've I've done it in the past before COVID with uh, people who are very moribund, sick, and who I don't think will tolerate sedation to do them local, either do a EUS or EBUS with just very good local. It's just that with COVID, it's been very difficult to achieve a good local anesthesia with just local anesthesia. But otherwise I've done awake EBUS multiple times and awake EUS for, for for diagnosing lesions in patients who I didn't think could tolerate sedation. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, what about suction? Do you use suction? I do suction in nine out of 10 cases. Uh, and if I, on antiplatelet, sometimes I'll avoid it. If the first pass bleeds, I would tend to not do sedation, suction. If I get gooey goop, then I'll just keep suction on. Okay, so basically you start with suction and then you take it on from there. Yeah, uh, I looked at the slide. If it's goop or it has the goop sign, then we continue with the goop. If there's bloody, then we'll switch off suction. It's interesting you say goop sign. I've been wanting to do a study on predicting yield just based yes. on the eyeball Me test. Me too. I have data. You do? I have, okay. I, I have 100 patients which I have a goop data on. You want to you want to combine your data? <laughs> You're more experienced than me, and you beat me to this. <laughs> uh, so I mean, I mean, uh, I think it's gonna come out. Of, so I have shiny goop, cheesy goop, necrotic goop. Those are my goop classification and bloody goop. All I can say is I can't wait to see it. <laughs> yes, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So some folks outside, uh, mainly outside the U.S., are experienced with introducing the EBUSCOPE down the esophagus, EUSB. Now, pooled analysis clearly shows additive yield of EUSB to EBUS. However, most of that comes from the difficult four L's and the sevens, not from the eights and the nines. So what's the real benefit of a USB then? The real benefit, I'm biased, as Dr. Murugu would say. I think the real benefit is not just four L and seven. Uh, they are transesophageal masses, which you cannot access from the airway specifically just at the vocal cords where your balloon just won't expand enough to give you an access into the area and they're just below the below the clavicle. So in that area, though that spot, EUS is heaven sent because you just book it just across the pharynx and you look right in and there's no irritation of the vocal cord. 
that's one. B, you can go below the diaphragm, sample the liver, sample the adrenal, sample the celiac plexus, if you want to. I think the true benefit of EUS, even though it makes seven and four L extremely easy, is to sample paraesophageal masses, which are not next to uh, the trachea, which would be masses in area of eight and nine, which you would not call eight and nine. And that's why they get missed in this pool data is because they're called just mass. So what is a mass? I think we need to localize our masses better when we're doing a paraesophageal masses. Mm -hmm. And especially the ones right next to the vocal cords, when it's just difficult to maneuver, I think those are three points where US beats out EBUS. Having said that, for training purposes, if there's anything higher, uh, I usually start with the EBUS and do the EUS if we have to go for any other other things. So is this an easy skill to learn? It is an extremely easy skill to learn because it's a shapes. It's a this is a straight tube, so there you can't get lost, so, and and you have big landmarks. So you have the aortic arch, which looks like an apple. If you look it in, look it in, look at look at it in uh, in a profile view, and right below that is the PA on the left side, and right below them is the atrium, and right below them is the is the right ventricle, and right below them is the liver. So with these markers on the left side, you can get anywhere in the esophagus without getting lost. Now, left adrenal can be a little tricky because it's usually a little bit below the below the junction and the stomach can stomach movements from patient swallowing and breathing and diaphragm moving up and down. Adrenal, when they are less than one centimeter, can be a little hard to get, but it's not, it's anatomy-wise, it's way more simpler than EBUS is. It's pretty pretty straightforward to learn. So so let's say I, I have a case tomorrow. I've learned the anatomy. I've done all my homework. Uh, is it as simple as just going down the esophagus, identifying the site and stabbing it much the same way I would stab a lymph node with EBUS? Yes, I would say it's even easier because esophagus is so so soft that the, you don't even have to really stab. It's just, just an insertion like you would be putting in just like a gentle IV in somebody. And I don't worry about infection or anything else, airing the so esophagus, anything like that? So majority of the infections when they're uh, are in the oral cavity. So if you're crossing the oral cavity, your scope is the most contaminated. Below that, uh, the infection rate probably is the same. I have not had any, I've had mediastinitis with an, with an EBUS, but I've not had a mediastinitis with an EUS yet. But again, it's just me. Overall, could there be Canada and introduce infection? Yes, and there's obviously evidence of infection when you do just an EBUS. But with an EUS, if the lesion is below below the thoracic inlet, the chances of infection are very high. Uh, if you if you are going to be aggressive and stab something in the posterior pharynx where your needle is going through all that crap, then yes, you have certainly are going to have some infections in the superior pharynx. So, so this is sounds like an easy skill to learn. Why all the resistance to trainers in the U.S.? You tell me, or that I don't know. <laughs> I've been trying to push it for the past eight years. It's just met with so much resistance and indifference. And in the in the sense, there's, there certainly has been a decrease in publications from the U.S. proposing the proposing U.S. There's certainly been. Uh, 
certainly been some more experience in I mean in South in Australia and Canada, but we really are behind the ball on this one, I think. I mean, it's something that uh, I choose not to comment on because I have no experience with it, but you do. So I respect your comments and, and you know, it's something I would definitely like to, like to get my hands dirty with. Absolutely, sir. Anytime as, as <laughs> COVID permitting. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much again. Thanks, man. See you later. All right. We hope you, the listeners, enjoyed this episode, uh, which was a new format of podcast hosting for us. Thank you for joining us and please subscribe to the AABIP YouTube channel where you can listen to other podcasts and watch other AABIP educational videos for free.